I remember not long after we, had, we started having kids, I was just, I've been, I felt like I've been hit by a freight train. Yeah, you know, I was just absolutely knackered. Um, and I don't know what you're like when you're tired, but I am pretty moody. <laughs> and uh, I can be sort of like a glass half full person on the best of weeks. So when I'm, when I'm very tired, that's kind of what happens, um, you know, to an extreme. And I remember sort of about six months in, watching this film, which to this day remains one of my favorite films. Some of you would have watched it yourselves. It's called About Time. And those of you who haven't watched it, I'm just going to ruin it for you by telling you what happens. But basically, there's this guy called Tim. Some of you have heard me say this before. There's a guy called Tim. And on his 21st birthday, his dad sits him down and says, look, son, um, the men in our family have a particular talent, a gift. And it's that when they turn 21, they can travel back through time. But not to just any point in time in history, but just to another point in their own lives. They can go back and relive a particular moment of their lives. And um, so much of the rest of the film is this guy Tim trying to work out how do I use this, this gift I've got. And of course, because it's a romantic comedy, he spends 90% of the time working out how to use it to get the girl. Um, but also, he has this conversation further into the film with his dad, and his dad sort of is trying to explain to him how to be happy. And you know, if you want to use this gift, and, and your goal is to be happy, he says, don't, don't waste, you know, don't go after money, because uh, that never works. And he says, don't just seek kind of success and, and, and fame, that doesn't work either. He says, here's the secret if you want to be happy. What you've got to do, my son, is just live a day, just a normal day, where you go to work and you do all the normal things that you would, and just live that day. And then he says, at the end of the day, travel back in time to the start of the very same day. And this time, live the day out all over again, but notice all the things you missed the first time around because you were too busy rushing around being stressy. And so Tim does this. You see him in the film. So he lives a normal day, and, and the, you know, he's in a rush. He's, he's kind of late for work, so he's running through the train station, trying to get past everybody. And then his work is like he's a barrister, so he's, he's fighting this case, and he wins the case. And when he wins it, he goes, yeah. And then he rushes off to get a sandwich, and you see him just grab this sandwich at Pret and run out the door. And uh, then he collapses onto the train on his way home at the end of the day. He's on the tube. He's just exhausted. And the guy sitting next to him has got music playing and his headphones really loudly. So he sits there slumped on the train as he heads off home. And then he falls into bed at night. And then he remembers what his dad says. So he decides he's going to go back and live the same day all over again. Travels back in time. And this time in the film, they put some really nice music in the background. So it already feels like a better day. And then he, uh, he's running through the train station to get to work, and, and suddenly he just stops, and he just looks around at the, at the amazing building that he's in and just, like, drinks it in for a moment before he carries on. This time when he gets to work and he, he, he wins the case as a lawyer, rather than just going, yeah, he sort of goes, yeah, and he grabs the guy that he's just won the case for and gives him a massive hug, and he high-fives the lawyer next to him. This time, when he runs into the sandwich shop, they've changed the angle of the camera so that you can see the face of the lady serving him the sandwich, and you, you see her smile at him, and their eyes meet for a moment, and there's this moment of human connection and human interaction. This time, when he gets on the tube on the way home, he, he listens to the music of this guy who's got his headphones really loud, and he starts playing air guitar along to the song. 
And he, he, just, he just begins to uh, get all the juice out of the day that he missed the first time around. And then the film goes on. And towards the end, he, he, he imparts his own secret for happiness. He says, I, Tim, the son, have gone one step further than my dad. And this is what he says. I don't travel back at all now, not even for the day. I just try to live each day as if I've deliberately come back to this one day to enjoy it, as if it were the full final day of my extraordinary ordinary life. I remember watching this in my knackered, moany state and feeling a little convicted by that. And uh, I remember in the early hours with my son Josiah, who was just six months old, and when he refused to go to sleep, I would sit him on my knee and I would look at him and I would say, Josiah, I've decided to live this day as if I've deliberately come back to this one day to enjoy it, as if it were the full final day of my extraordinary, ordinary life. And he would go, what? Which I took to be, that's very wise, Dad. That's very wise. And I've been trying my best ever since. And one of the things that fascinates me about um, the point that that film makes is in both days, exactly the same things happen. But, one of the, but, but the approach to the day is what makes all the difference. And so a question to begin uh, this morning is, um, everything we've got ahead of us in the week ahead, all the emails we have to send and all the meetings we have to have and, and you know, all the chores we need to do just to survive, all these things we've got ahead of us in a week, do you think it might be possible that there is a way of approaching all of that that means we end up full of angst and full of stress and full of worry. And there's another way, an alternative way, to approach those very same things that, that yields to us joy and that gives to us contentment. I think there is. And it's not about what's going to happen this week. It's the same either way. It's the way that we approach it. And um, make no mistake, God, the God that we worship, is a God of joy. And it's not that he's not grieved by what's going on in our world. It angers him, and he is utterly opposed to our sin. At the same time, he is in his core a joyful being. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been enjoying one another for the whole of eternity. And his will for us is that we might too also be joyful, uh, just like him. He's like a father who wants his children to enjoy the life that, that they've got. And there's a really simple practice that we can be tempted to dismiss because it is simple and we can think, therefore, it makes so little difference to our lives. But if we do it, it's very practical. If we do it, it makes a massive difference. And it is the practice of giving thanks. The practice of thanksgiving. And there's so many commands in the Bible uh, to, to do this. I'm just going to read one to get us going and there's some more we'll come to later. Um, but it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. I've been accused of a few things in my life, but nobody has ever accused me of being overflowing with thankfulness. 
And, uh, and yet this is a command. And, and what I love about this and the other ones in the New Testament is that they are instructions not from people. There's a weight to them because obviously because they're scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also we've got to remember that they're written by people who don't have easy lives when they say that. Paul, who wrote this, he, he was in riot after riot in city after city. People tried to kill him. They, he, he was subjected to violence. They beat him up and left, left him for dead uh, one time. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He was arrested and spent a whole chunk of his life in jail. And eventually, he was, they chopped his head off. He was executed. So he does not have an easy life. And yet he says that we are to live lives overflowing with thankfulness. And the question then is, what is Thanksgiving? What is it to give thanks? Well, it's an action before it's a feeling. Um, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't really leave as much wiggle room, does it? Always giving thanks for everything. Um, gratitude is a feeling. Gratitude is like an emotion you feel, but giving thanks is an action. It's something that we choose to do. And the thing that's, that's worth bearing in mind with it is that the conditions are rarely right for giving thanks. If we wait until everything in our lives is sorted, everything in the lives of the people we know and love is also sorted, then we'll be waiting really forever. And, and I know and I understand that to talk about giving thanks when we are in pain can seem almost insensitive. It can seem flippant. Do you understand that the, the despair we're, that I'm going through? I, 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 I get that um, and I appreciate it. But one of the things that has struck me again about Jesus is that his life was tough. His life was hard and yet he rejoiced and he gave thanks. And for me, one of the most moving moments at the Last Supper is where he takes the bread, which represents his body, that is about to be broken, and he knows that, and he gives thanks for it. And, and then, knowing everything that's going to happen to him later, they sing a hymn together. And then having given thanks and sung a hymn, they head out of the room into the night where he's about to be betrayed, where he's going to be arrested, where he's going to be crucified. Before he went, he gave thanks. And he's the one that we follow. And of course, we want to thank him because he deserves it. But also, as we give thanks, there's so many things that happen to us. And I haven't got time to go into all of them. So I'll just focus on one. What thanksgiving does is it's like it, it wakes up our souls. My wife, Beth, um, she has many gifts. One of them is putting up with me as a husband. Um, but uh, one of the things she is very talented at is she's just got this ability to fall asleep anywhere. Do you know somebody who has that gift, who can just any? There are certain people, aren't there, who seem to be born with it. And so she can, we get on a plane, she's literally gone, right? But before they bring the food out or tell you about the seatbelt, she's out for the count. That'll be her for 11 hours. 
Um, when we're driving, when I'm driving, you know, I'll be driving and I'll look over the passenger seat and she's fallen fast asleep. When she's driving, she can also fall asleep. And so there's no way of me relaxing in a car. If I'm in the passenger seat, I just have to keep watching to check that she hasn't nodded off and killed us all. Um, she, there's this, when we started dating, there was this photo her mum and dad had framed in their house that I, I saw where she was packing for university and it's just a photo of her lying on the floor, completely asleep, surrounded by boxes. Um, I remember when we went to, just a little while back, we, we went to A&E. And uh, she, we just had a baby. She wasn't 100%. She, wanted to, she just wanted to get everything checked out. Um, so we turn up at A&E, and you know how it is. You're in the waiting room for hours. And then eventually they said, I will just um, take you to, to, to this room, Beth. And so I waited. I wasn't allowed to go. And she went off. And uh, I, was, I, I, was, I was sitting there for, for two hours. She didn't come back. No one came to tell me anything. I rang her like at least 15 times and no answer. So I start getting really worried. Like we didn't think it was a serious thing, but they've taken her off. They haven't brought her back. In the end, I'm asking people. Nobody can tell me where she is. So I know you're not meant to do this, but I was like, well, I'm just going to go find her, you know? So I started wandering around. And eventually, I found her in this room. And she was on the bed and she was fast asleep. And what had happened is they said, we're going to check, we're going to just check you out. They took her into this room. They said, we'll be back in two minutes. And then they forgot about her. She fell asleep. And so I had been sitting there imagining every worst case scenario you can possibly think of while she's having a nap. Um, so Beth, she's very good at falling asleep. There are other people who are, they're, they're okay, maybe they find it hard to fall asleep, but, but they, they, um, they love to stay asleep. And so if you're a parent of a teenager, for example, you'll be living through this right now. You, you get up at a normal time. You go about your day doing normal things. By the time it emerges from its cave, from its lair, you've already achieved so much, and it's just starting its day. Um, and you realize that, particularly if you've got a teenage boy, the only way to wake them is you walk into their room and you fling the curtains wide and you sort of like drag them out of bed and you throw a bucket of cold water in their face and then they begin to kind of wake up. Well, what I want to say to us is that our souls are a little like Beth in that they're very good at falling asleep and that our souls are a little like these teenagers who are, and they're, they're very hard to wake up in the morning. And so you can find that you wake up and you start your day and you've gone off and you've achieved a load of things and your soul is still fast asleep. The soul still needs to be woken up. Now what Thanksgiving does is it's like walking into your soul's bedroom, flinging wide the curtains, dragging your soul out of bed, chucking a bucket of cold water and then feeding it caffeine. Thanksgiving wakes our souls up. And there's all these instructions in the Psalms that are about stirring up the soul. I literally, at one point, it says, wake up, my soul. Wake up. And, uh, and so what it, it doesn't start with a feeling most of the time, Thanksgiving. But what often happens is that if the feelings and the emotions, they follow. Um, because so often what happens is our feelings follow our thinking. Um, if I were to say to you, hey guys, let's all just think about lockdown. You can already feel the emotions, right? It's like we're often, not always, but often our, our emotions follow what we think about. Well, when we give thanks, so often what we find is that our, our emotions follow that. I don't think it's a coincidence that when Paul says in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He goes on to say, and the peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. You know, there's a place for we give him our burdens and the peace follows, but also thanksgiving is in there. I reckon it's the case that as we give thanks, peace also follows because it's an opportunity for us to reflect on his goodness. So this is some of what happens. How do we do it? How do we practice thanksgiving in our everyday weeks? Um, if we're going to do it. Well, it's probably worth noting that we're not really set up to win in the culture that we're part of right now. So we're in a culture of entitlement, uh, this idea that the world owes me one, and uh, the greater our sense of entitlement, the smaller our capacity for thanksgiving and gratitude. We're also swimming in the waters of consumerism. And so what that means is we're bombarded every day of every week of the year by millions of pounds worth of advertising that is trying to convince us that we don't have this one thing. And if we had it, if we could just get that, then we'd be happy. That doesn't always help. We're also in a culture where we compare ourselves to each other, probably more than ever. So uh, it used to be that our grandparents would compare themselves to the Joneses down the road who had an extra bedroom on their house. But we compare ourselves on social media to the world. Uh, we compare ourselves to the Kardashians and all of their mansions. And again, that doesn't help. So it's just worth noting we're not set up to win. This is kind of going against the, going against the flow here. And the other thing that we want to bear in mind is that we have an enemy, Satan. And he is real. And one of the things that he loves to do, uh, I've noticed anyway, is he loves to take God's blessings and turn them into burdens. Make us, make us think of his blessings as a burden. And um, you know that Beth was just in Hawaii for a week, and so I had the four boys. And um, I can tell you, I mean, I was a hero. Um, I had these four kids. I wasn't, she does this every day, you know, every, but I was feeling like a hero anyway. And, and honestly, the, I don't want to be graphic, but the amount of poo I had to deal with in a single week was frankly unbelievable. I am tempted to show you a slideshow, um, but I won't. But it, every sort of, like, Shade and every type of consistency. That's what I had to. That's what I had to cope with. And um, I'll be honest. In, in in that week, I did feel a little bit like I had been burdened, and I was feeling that quite deeply. And and actually, there came a, a point, and I've been reflecting on it since, where just um, this is probably coincidence. Just when we were going to get Beth from the airport, so I knew it was almost over. That was the moment I realized these these. I put the boys in this car seat. We've got four like a little bench, and they all sit in a row. I put them all in this row, and I turned around while they were all distracted for a moment. I just looked at them, and I just, you know, there's Zachary chewing on his car. There's Caleb staring off into space. There's Josiah reading a book. There's, there's Judah wanting me to put Toy Story on in the car for the millionth time. And I just looked at them, and I just thought, I'm so blessed. I'm so rich. You have given me so much. How is it the case that for the last week, maybe not always verbally, but internally, I've seen these beautiful gifts as burdens to me? And the enemy, he loves to do that. He takes these blessings of God and somehow tricks us into thinking of them as a, as a burden. And they're not. And so part of practicing this is, is seeing that that pattern can emerge and almost defiantly rising against that. So how do we do that? Well, here's, just to finish, a couple of practical thoughts. Uh, it starts with counting your blessings, to literally count them. And uh, there's so many we could list, but 
Let's start with blessing number one. And uh, really, we could just talk about him for the rest of it. But I want to count our blessings. Let's start with him. Jesus tells this beautiful little story in Matthew chapter 13 about a merchant who goes looking for fine pearls. And he wanders in, as it were, to a shop. And he sees this exquisite pearl. And because he's an expert, absolute expert in pearls, he recognizes this as the most valuable pearl. And the guy behind the counter knows it's, it's worth a bit, but doesn't quite get just how much it's worth. And so when the guy looking for pearls says, how much are you going to sell that one for? This other guy, the shopkeeper, gives him a high price. And the price is basically the equivalent of this guy's net worth. And so what he does is he goes away, liquidates his assets, sells everything he has, gets all the cash together, and then comes back and he buys this pearl. And then he walks out the shop. And as he walks out of the shop, He's not sad. He's not thinking, hey, I've just given away everything I have, and now all I've got is this pearl. As he walks away, he's absolutely over the moon because he knows that what he's paid for that pearl is a fraction of what it's worth, that its value is a thousand times the price that was quoted to him. So he's walked out having just made the deal of his life. And what the Lord is saying to us through that little story is he's saying, do you understand? You know, one of the things, you have the pearl. We've all made the deal of our lives. We gave up everything. And it seemed maybe like a lot at the time, but what we got in exchange is we got the pearl of great price. We got the God who never leaves. We got the Father who's always faithful. We got the Savior who rescues us. We have the Spirit who fills us. We have eternity ahead of us. We have all of it. And his mercies are new every morning, fresh mercy, fresh cooked out of the oven, not yesterday's mercies, brand new batch of mercy every single day. He, he, he wraps us up in his embrace. When we are faithless, he sticks with us. When we forget, he always remembers. This is who we know. He's the pearl of great price. So if we're going to start counting our blessings and giving thanks, let's start there with who he is. And one of the things that, that helps me is sometimes there are certain promises in the scripture that I just struggle to believe. One of the things that is really practical is to take a promise that we might struggle to absorb and give thanks for it. So if we struggle to believe he forgives us, what we could do is day after day after day say, I don't feel forgiven, but you tell me in your word that I am. So I'm going to thank you for the fact that you make me clean. One of the ones that I struggle to believe is, is how much he loves me. I have this weird thing where I attach love to my performance. And so I think if I do badly, he doesn't love me. And so I went through a, a period of about six months where every morning when I would wake up, the first thing I would do is I would say, as I was still lying there in bed, thank you, Lord, that you love me so much you chose me before you made the world. Thank you that you are so consistent and kind that your love, that quality of that love has been the same ever since that moment. And thank you that the quality of your love is that you gave your only son for me. That's how much you love me. That's how deeply you love me. I didn't feel it when I woke up. I just thanked him for it. And do you know what? After doing that for about four or five months, I actually found myself really believing it. So it's choosing, first of all, I'm going I'm to count my blessings and I'm going to start with you. And um, then it doesn't stop there because not only does he bless us with himself, but he blesses us with so much in our lives. And part of the art of practicing thanksgiving is it's not about, 
Let's get some new shiny things that we can give thanks for. That's, that's hedonism. You know, just, just I need something else to, to, to entertain me or to satisfy me. What the practice of thanksgiving is, is it's where are those little things that you've blessed me with, but I just got too distracted. I got caught up, and so I, I haven't, you know, I haven't recognized them as the gifts that they really are. And I remember hearing this story a while back that's really bizarre, but it just stayed with me, maybe for that reason. And the story is of this monk who's walking through a jungle, and then he starts getting chased by a tiger who wants to eat him. So he starts running through the jungle. And then as he's running, he comes to this cliff. And, um, and it's quite sheer, but he thinks the only way I can escape the tiger is if I go over this cliff. So he starts scrambling down over the cliff, and he's climbing down. But it's very, very steep, and it's all crumbling. And then he looks down, and there's a massive drop, and there's all these sharp, spiky rocks. And he thinks, oh, my way, you know, I'm going to fall. He's, the tiger's there at the top, so he can't go back. And the, the kind of the sharp rocks are there below. And as he's hanging there on the side of the cliff, he just notices this little plant that's growing there next to him. And it's a strawberry plant, and there's a really big strawberry on it. And so he picks the strawberry, and he puts it in his mouth, and he just goes, Mmm, that is a really good strawberry. And that's the story. I know, it's strange, right? But the point I think it's trying to make is that what he could have been doing is worrying about everything that was coming behind him. What he could have been doing is he could have been worrying about everything that's ahead of him. But instead, what he chose to do is spot the strawberry, eat it, and savor it. And the point is this. Now is the only time you can give thanks. You can't do it yesterday, and tomorrow hasn't happened yet. So this is the only time. And the, the world is, is pregnant with the strawberries that we choose not to enjoy and not to savor because we're too caught up in what happened yesterday or what might happen tomorrow. And it's learning to, to see these things and begin to appreciate them for the gifts that they are. I remember listening to this guy who was giving a really brief talk. Um, who, and the talk was titled, What I Learned When I Thought I Might Die. And he, he'd been on a plane that had crash-landed in the Hudson River. And uh, he just had a few moments as the plane sort of nosedived. I mean, miraculously, they managed to land okay. But he had a few minutes to reflect as his life was kind of heading towards its end. And he shared some of the lessons that he learned just in that couple of minutes of very, very stark reflection. And some of it was what you might expect. You know, he said, I, I realize that actually it's really friends and family that, that matter more than so much of the other stuff we think is important. But another thing he said is, I has, a result of that moment of nearly dying, I have become a collector of bad wines. And he went on to say, it used to be the case before he had this experience that if he had a really nice bottle of wine, he would put it to one side and he'd say, I'll save this for a really special occasion. But then he said, this moment taught him that life could end any time. So he says, now, if I have a really good bottle of wine, I just drink it. So I have become a collector of all the bad wines. And I savor the good ones. And um, so, you know, I thought there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Go, buy a very nice bottle of wine and drink it, is the lesson of the, uh, the story. No, it's actually, for us, however small, I want to savor this, this good thing now. I don't want to wait until it's gone before I appreciate it. You know what, my, my kids, and your stresses will be different from mine. I'm just speaking from my daily life. But my, my kids, they're, they're such a gift to me. Josiah, Judah, Caleb, and Zachary. There will come a day when rather than my changing their nappies, they will be changing my nappies. 
And on that day, I don't want to look back and, and regret not enjoying this one and this day, because this is the good old days. I'm living in the good old days. So it's learning to see these things now and really practically as we finish. One of the things that can help us to do this is just to take just a couple of minutes every day if we can. Maybe it's when you're walking to work or you're sitting on the train. Uh, maybe it's just before you go to sleep at night. But just to think about the day you've had. And to do it with God. And just say, Lord, is there, is there any gift from you that I missed today? Anything you want to bring into my mind? Was it just the fact that that friend texted me at that moment? Was it the fact that that project went better than I thought it was going to? And I prayed about it. Was it the fact that that thing went really wrong? But then I came home and there was that person waiting for me at the door. What was the gift that you gave me today that I missed? I want to see that and I want to thank you for it. And I wonder if as we do this, as we practice this gift, what we'll find is that our capacity for joy increases. And that the direction we're setting for our lives is that we might become like, you know, you meet them every now and then, these elderly saints who've been walking with Jesus for years. Do you know the type who they just have this beautiful aroma of joyfulness about them? And it's not because their lives have been easy. It's not because they haven't suffered. Many of them have suffered way more than I ever have. It's because in the midst of the challenges, they chose to practice thanksgiving. What if the week we have ahead of us could go one of two ways? It's going to have all the same emails, all the same meetings, all the same good things and all the same hard things. But what if there was a way of approaching it that meant we could get so much more joy and contentment out of it and we could have an intimacy with our Father because of it? There is. And it's really practical. It's if we approach it choosing to give thanks.